Thank you, Rebecca. Can we bow our heads and pray together? We've been reminded in singing that Jesus conquered the grave. And Lord, I guess all our fears, one way or another, point to the grave and the extinction of all earthly hopes. So give us courage this evening to contemplate our own graves and most importantly of all, Jesus in his conquering of all graves and all death to live a resurrection life. Amen. Well, I'm demob happy. Uh, Please excuse me if I uh, don't hang around long after the service. I have to get down towards Heathrow uh, tonight. I'm going on holiday for a couple of weeks. And I'm going to the same place that we've been to for the last 20 years, to Vermont. And not far from where we go on holiday lies the town of Barry, uh, Vermont. It has the finest carving granite in the world. And the cemetery is full of whimsical creations by spectacularly good Italian carvers who came over from Italy uh, at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. So here's a selection of them. (laughs) They are enormous fun. They really are. You can actually sit, the the, um, armchair you can sit in. Um, The the ball is actually about this big. Um, The aeroplane, the the aeroplane's quite small. The car is great fun. A stock car there. Yeah, so that's, um, that's Barry. Uh, kind of thing you, you see once and really enjoy and never go back there again. <laughs> uh, I wish it were true uh, that you were looking at a gravestone uh, tonight. I wish it were true that I was looking out on a cemetery. Each of your names listed, it sounds odd, it sounds macabre, but Peter wants us to be completely clear. We cannot truly live if we will not truly die. Do have the reading again in front of you, page 1220. Paul says some similar things, but we're here tonight to attend to Peter's way of putting it. And we're going to need to get our head around this idea of our own death. Let's go through it. We first get the idea from verse 1. And suffering, in, uh, in verse 1, it's not a period uh, that Christ went through, a period of suffering or pain or struggle. The, the tense that's used in the original language means that it's a moment. And the word used makes it clear that what he's talking about is Christ suffering and dying. It's a once-for-all suffering. So when he comes on to uh, uh, the kind of the principle in the second part of the verse, what he means is that he who has suffered and died is by definition, because of his death, finished with sin. That person, that him or her, I suppose, has died, and so in verse 2, 
the life that he or she lives is lived not for the desires that led to death, but for the will of God. If you have died to self, then living towards God is kind of what's left. Which takes us to verse 3. And the list of what you have died to. All that the pagans still do, and which you used to do. Uh, Drunkenness, uh, well, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. When I was uh, in Jerusalem some years ago on a kind of ecumenical trip, I met Mike. Mike had been a bassist with a rock band, and I don't know how many rock bands you know personally, but they're not renowned for their holiness of lifestyle. And Mike had become a, uh, he was training for the Catholic priesthood. Uh, he was American, and I said to him, uh, he was from California, he had, the whole, he had the whole thing going on in a California rock band. And I said to him, Mike, you used to be a bassist in a rock band. How are you going to cope with celibacy? And he gave me the best ever answer I've heard. He said, Alan, I've had enough sex. He had taken a very powerful decision to put that life, this life, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, which is carousing and detestable idolatry, and I didn't quiz him on, you know, kind of which bits. Um, he'd taken a very powerful decision to put all of that behind him. And that's exactly what Peter says. Enough already. You're done. And Peter knows well what will happen when you turn your back on all of that. All the people who are happily part of the gang when you were in these habits, who were glad to be your friend then, they will suddenly hate you. Why is that? Because you are now to them a sign of judgment. Your holiness is a provocation to them. It shines a powerful light into the dark places. You're someone who said, yes, I did do that. but I'm not going to do it anymore. And so they heap abuse on you. And just before we go any further, I do want to just to pick up a thought that may strike someone's mind, though maybe not right now, perhaps later if you think about the passage. Doesn't this contradict, if this idea that uh, when you put all this behind you, uh, people heap abuse on you, doesn't that contradict all that we know about and hear about uh, people being attracted by the light of Christ in his people? by the love that binds the community, that, that sense of togetherness that comes. Look at the, the people of God who are formed first in Acts chapter 2. Very powerful witness as their community life attracts others. No, it's not so much that it contradicts it, because the two things are true at the same time. We can never say what effect the gospel will have. The gospel, though, the word of God, we are told, is like a, a sword, and it divides. And some people see it and go, yeah, there's something here, and I want to be part of it. And others see it and go, there's something here, and I absolutely do not want to be part of it. I hate it. The gospel cuts. The light divides. Both are true. But don't be afraid, says Peter. You don't have to be afraid of them. 
Verse 5, they are going to have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then uh, the very odd uh, verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Well, what on earth is that about? Well, the key word in verse 6 is now. They're now dead. There was a moment when they were not dead. They were alive, just like everyone else. So verse 6 does not mean... Now, I wasn't here last week, so I I don't quite know what kind of uh, explanation you got for some of the uh, awkward verses in chapter 3. But it doesn't mean that the gospel was preached to dead people when they are dead. Rather, it means the gospel was preached to those who are now dead, but they were alive to listen to the preaching. And the gospel killed them, but in a good way. That is, the good news of Jesus brought them to their part in his crucifixion, so that they died with Christ, but so as then to rise with him. They responded to the gospel. Then, actually, in the course of normal events, they died. But it doesn't matter. Knowing that gospel of death and life means we can say about them, verse 6, that they were judged, they are dead according to the body, because that's gone. But they are judged and alive according to the Spirit. And he's talking about dead people because of the times in which he wrote. The church was worried. Jesus was supposed to be coming back, but where was he? And what about those who had died in the interim, in the gap? What was going to happen to them? Were they going to miss out? Not at all, says Peter. The dead and we who are alive, we're all exactly the same boat. Death has met us in the gospel. And we should say of our bodies, we who are alive should say of our bodies that they are as much done with sin as the body of a dead person is. So the dead, the physically dead, are not worse off. Life has met us too in the gospel. And life has met them. They are now already fully alive in the nearer presence of God. While our spirits, our bodily desires and sin being dead, our spirits are alive to God as well. We're in the same position. Those who are in their graves and those of us who walk around are in the same position. Because the gospel has met us with news of death, our death, and life because Jesus has conquered the grave. Now, I don't think that's easy. I don't think it's, uh, it's as easy as uh, when we encounter the same ideas in St. Paul. And perhaps the, the, way, the ways in which it's not easy might lead us to indulge in speculation. But let's stick with what we know. And if this should all seem a bit weird, then it's no weirder than verse 7. The end of all things is near. You've probably seen the cartoons of the, the man. Um, it's always a man. I never, are women just too sensible to do this? Um, but the man with the sandwich board on saying, you know, the end is nigh, the end is nigh. Has anyone ever seen a woman walking around with a sandwich board saying the end is nigh? 
I've seen men, never women, never women don't know why. Um, but it is a reminder that the day will come when all things will simply stop. And Jesus will roll up the scroll of history. Someone said to me this morning, um, is it okay if I owe the bookstall pound fifty for a book? And I said, yes. And the great thing is if Jesus comes, dad, comes now but between, between you taking the book and uh, putting in the money, you won't, owe, you won't owe anything. But the end is, near, is always near. There was a great uh, preacher in the early part of the 20th century who rejoiced in the splendid name of Smith Wigglesworth. And he used to throw open his windows in the morning, he was a great Pentecostal preacher, and say, perhaps today. Perhaps it's going to happen today. And perhaps it will. Perhaps I will never get to Heathrow. It's always near, whether it's today or tomorrow or 20 years. We, we always have to treat it as, as near because we can never know. It's always near on the, th- on the threshold of the moment in which we stand. And therefore, a few things follow. If the end is near, then that makes radical all our ways of living. There was a, um, a film, I think it came from a book, um, uh, a little while ago called Eat, Pray, and Live, or Eat, Pray, and Love. Uh, but because the end of all things is near, says Peter, pray, love, and serve. Uh, pray, be clear-minded. What that means is don't be fuddled in your brains. Be sober. Uh, you used to be in drunkenness, but don't be drunk anymore. Rather, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now, I think what, what probably, I, I don't know how many of you um, have time with God uh, in the morning, as I do. Now, uh, over the course of 57 years, I'm sure there are times when I've probably had a glass of wine too many. But very rarely have I had a glass of wine too, too many at 8 o'clock in the morning or 7 o'clock in the morning or whenever I've been praying. So what does it mean to be clear-minded in our prayers? I think what it means is if you've, if you've done one to verses 1 to 6, if you've accepted that you are dead in important ways, if you are no longer indulging in drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry, or if you want a a different set of vices, go to chapter 2, verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. You've got sex and indulgence in chapter 4, and you've got backbiting and division in chapter 2. If those are behind you, then when it comes to your prayers, you're no longer praying, Oh, Lord, I did it again. Uh, which is actually, I suspect, what a lot of praying ends up being. But that's, that's kind of, it's done. And so you're saying, Lord, I really I want to pray for Romania this morning. And you can roam around the world, roam around your life, roam around your contacts, praying clear-mindedly, soberly, industriously, self-controlledly, 
roaming across the areas of life that need prayer intelligently. Prayer, in this sense, would be like swimming in the water of another world. Pray, then. And then love. Verse 8, love each other deeply. There's some of this I won't go into again, because last time I was here I was talking about uh, love. Uh, But there's this line. Love covers over a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean yours. It doesn't mean that if you love some people, that's actually, um, God's going to say, well, let me think. Well, in the divine calculus, you love Jane, so I'll let you off the following four sins. It's not what it's supposed to mean. What it means is, if I love uh, Liz, Liz Parfit deeply, Uh, then if, if Liz upsets me, my love is big enough to cope. It covers over the multitude of her sins and vice versa. Because I don't want to imply that she's sinful and I'm not. Because that would be wrong. Sorry, Liz. It's danger of going off script. It covers over every doubt, every quibble. And it's reflected in this lovely uh, line in verse 9, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. In the ancient world, there were, there were, there were uh, people traveling uh, all over. And you, you didn't get to stop in a holiday inn or a premier inn or whatever it may be. You stayed uh, with other Christians. And the only way you could actually move around was to rely on hospitality, which is a, a Middle Eastern thing. We, I guess we all know that. But you can imagine, can't you? that, oh, I don't know, um, the great Saint Thudia has just arrived from Rome. And you're kind of, okay, we can do this for two days. Good. And you put up Saint Thudia and, you know, make her welcome and, and do it. And just as she leaves, um, uh, Saint Agatha turns up. Uh, and you're getting pretty cheesed off pretty quickly with having to do hospitality. But you'll do it without grumbling if you remember that the end of all things is near. It radicalizes, you see, your reactions to everything. Think of all the things that you want to grumble about. Think of all the things you did grumble about last week inside. If you knew that Jesus was coming back, you wouldn't have grumbled about them so much. You know that wonderful set of uh, memes that you can see these days on first world problems? I saw a great one the other day of a girl uh, in the shower um, just go, oh, my shampoo and my conditioner never run out at the same time. So that you kind of, you, you're constantly kind of trying to work out well, which balance is which. It's a first world problem. When you can't get through to the internet, as I couldn't for a couple of days last week, you think, it's bad, it's awful, I'm grumbling. And then you think, yeah, but it's a first world problem, isn't it? If Jesus is coming back, it's really not that big a deal that the internet's down. Pray, love, and serve. Verse 10, each one should use whatever gift he's received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. He's not concerned about naming what gifts there are. He just wants you to serve and get on with it. 
these people in uh, verse, where are we? Verse 3, with their debauchery, lust, drunkenness, that's, well, you've got the list by now. Um, loving service is the opposite of those sins. These people are out for themselves. You're to be out for others. Now, I, I've, I've never been to an orgy. Uh, you, I, I, to ask you to take my word for that. Um, but uh, whatever an orgy looks like, uh, whatever Peter intended in his mind as he wrote it, uh, it was the opposite, I'm sure, of what he then goes on to talk about, which is serving. And the actual language is, is the same for, for the deacons, like in Acts chapter 6. It, it means waiting on tables. It means practical, loving service for others. Service is actually one of the new features that arises on the, the, the ancient landscape with the Christian community. There was no religion, no philosophy that valued the serving of one another. And it was acknowledged very quickly that that service was profoundly effective as that light in darkness. And I wonder if this is a good place to say something about us clergy. Now, I do so partly because Will was ordained again yesterday, not because the first one didn't take, Um, but uh, because the way the Church of England uh, does these things is we kind of put L plates on someone for a year. We ordain them as a deacon, uh, and uh, then uh, we ordain them a second time as a presbyter or elder or what the Church of England sometimes calls priest. Uh, And and the, the event of that ordination was very much marked by this spirit of service. And the danger can be that churches expect too much of those who've been set aside in that way, in that service, and not enough of yourselves. And if you think that that doesn't happen, let me tell you a story that Will himself told me. It was the parish weekend back in February. And Will asked someone in the congregation to do something. And the great thing about this story is that Will, bless him, sometimes has a dreadful memory. And I can't remember who said this. Because if, he, if we knew who said this, I wouldn't be able to tell the story. Uh, but the person involved said, no, 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 we pay you to do that. That's our church, 2014. That's what someone can say to our clergy. I am incredibly thankful. And this summer, probably more than for a very long time because it's a summer of mission and all kinds of things are going on. And I'm thankful for the huge levels of service that I see uh, at the community games the other day, knowing that Holiday Club is coming. Who cares, people going out on the streets? But what would a whole church of that kind of service look like? What if every service was like Peter describes here, offered in God's strength, if every speaking was uttered in confidence of being the words of God, what would it be like to live in a congregation like that? Well, I want to finish because there's not much more to say, but it strikes me that the problem with this passage is not going to be, well, I disagree with it, but rather that it sounds powerful, but how do I do it? Well, I want to suggest that we enter this world that, that Peter is describing here in two steps. And the first is imagination. Wake up every morning. 
And as you come to your prayers, read your tombstone. See your tombstone. Try this for a week. Tell, tell me if it, I'll try it for a week, but I won't be here next week, so I won't be here to tell you how it, how it went. But read your tombstone. Having read verse 1. Just, and then live as though that person with those desires is dead. And the other uh, step is praise. Look at right the other end of the passage at verse 11. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. That lifts your life towards truth. So that uh, if at the beginning... I said, we only truly live uh, if we truly die. The praise is is the other side. Uh, First we die, we look at our tombstone, and then we engage in praise. What would I be like in terms of new life? If every morning I looked at my tombstone and knew I had perished, and then every morning I looked to Jesus' glory, and I gave him praise. I don't know, but I'm going to try it for a week and see what happens. Can we pray together? I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and imagine your tombstone. I recognize that this is going to be really quite hard for some people, especially if you're uh, in a situation where it's not that long since there's been a bereavement in your life but it's your name that you see and no one else's. And take a a moment. We'll, We'll pause. It's evening service. We've got the time. Just to become clear what the things are that are buried in that plot. You may be very aware of things you wish were buried and don't feel like they are, but if Christ suffered and was done with sin, then we who are crucified with him, Peter wants us to claim the death of those things about ourselves that we loathe. Lord Jesus, you said that you came that we may have life in all its fullness. And we ask you now to let that life be made known among us. And may it be made known because we have also faced the death of all the sin that holds us back. We know that we will be back here, unless you return, this time next week, saying a confession again. And yet we can do no more tonight 
facing these words from Peter, then lay before you our, our desire that we would be done with sin and on the contrary might know your grace in its various forms. Amen.